Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Africa is a land with endless stories to tell. From epic battles, brilliant rulers, and the dramatic rise and fall of civilizations, join us on the History of Africa podcast to learn the oft-ignored stories of the African continent. From the sands of Cairo to the plains of Zimbabwe, and from the mountains of Ethiopia to the forests of the Congo, find the History of Africa podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. First of all, I'd like to greet everyone new here. We've uh, gotten a bunch of new listeners after I uh, managed to get an article of mine published in uh, the respectable Foreign Policy magazine. Welcome, everyone. And uh, secondly, I wish to dedicate this episode to every worker in the postal service. Those people, brave people who deliver letters and packages everywhere, because... While researching this, I uh, discovered that logistics are basically a nightmare. This episode is one of our historical ones, and um, thank you to Ben, who really told me to make this, and turned out to be a great adventure. But all in all, I have to say that mail, or post, or whichever is the correct term in whichever English language version that we're using, is a complex machinery. And it's always important for any government to take control over it and to make sure that all the connections and, and, and mail gets delivered. Currently, well, with all the COVID and everything, can't get mail as well. At least can't get proper mail and packages outside from the EU since we have new custom laws and I have to pay a value-added tax to every package that's sent to me and then stuff just doesn't arrive from all over the world and I have to wait a long time for it, so... <laughs> I have to say that I appreciate all the situation a lot, you know, after learning how the whole postal thing has been developed and created um, over time. And as in any country, you know, in modern day post-Soviet sphere, we often yell at our post. And they've lost a bunch of messages and, and stuff, but um, we have to take into account that in the Soviet era, the whole postal system was basically built anew. 
There were, of course, postmen and uh, people who delivered your mail in the Tsarist Empire, but at least in the Russian Empire, and later on the Soviet Union, the First World War basically demolished 90% of what had been built before, and that alone, due to sheer size of the Russian Empire, wasn't a large system since Russia hadn't industrialized nearly close enough to the levels of Western Europe and the United States. So, World War I arrived, and then we can basically start to talk about a whole new creation of a whole new system. And then it developed and, um, well, adopted in interesting ways. So this, the whole Soviet mail system, or postal system, I'm, I'm going to use uh, only one of these terms in this episode, I hope. I think I'm going to just say Soviet post, because that feels closer to me, is what this episode is going to be all about. Previously, in the Russian Empire era, the postal service only covered the largest cities. Moscow, St. Petersburg, Yekaterinburg, because there people actually could read and write left. The mail arrived everywhere else in the vastness of the empire with a huge delay, often taking months to arrive. And in case of Siberia, you know, there were places who could only get some information out only once per year, if that, because of the sheer size of everything. And also, again, massive illiteracy also served this purpose, because, like I said, only a few percent of the people could actually read and write back then in the day. And then the First World War came, and um, in 1915, when the Germans advanced, they captured Baltics and, and large parts of the Western Russia, and they, of course, took control over all the telegraph stations and posts. And afterwards, during the Civil War between the Bolsheviks and the Whites, yeah, a lot more of the whole postal service was just completely crushed and destroyed. Approximately 70% of the Russian Empire postal service was destroyed, and the Soviets decided to basically just restart everything and rebuild stuff from scratch. And, you know, they worked hard during the interwar period. However, the process was quite slow, despite Lenin and the people of the Communist Party taking the whole mail postal service very seriously. In fact, one of the first orders written by Lenin in the 2nd of May 1918 was about the creation and kind of saving from destruction 3,000 postal services together with, of course, all the money held within. But everything of this, like I said, was basically demolished because of the World War I and, of course, the Civil War. In 1919 there were only 6,739 postal offices throughout the, the whole, well, at that time, it's not yet the Soviet Union, and it's not Russian Empire still. It's a weird sort of in-between state. But in total, everything was just 6,700 postal offices. And if you take into account that we're talking about the largest country on the planet Earth, then you understand that the coverage is, well, quite limited. Like I said, only concentrated around the main cities. Because in the Tsarist era, mostly newspapers and, and private letters between citizens inside these larger cities weren't that organized up until, like, 1850s as well. There were private people delivering these um, messages for money. They were called Pashtanyose. It was an, an interesting thing. And due to the lack of money... This whole development thing of the Postal Service in the Soviet Union also went really slowly. 
that was a difficult issue and, well, people couldn't really develop much. In Stalin's industrialization era, of course, the development of logistics was intensified, but, uh, well, we again have to split the whole process into two parts, because we'll have to focus on um, the post-war period. Since, well, World War II was um, a major issue, even for logistics. And this was interesting, because up until World War II, according to documentation, the um, average delivery of, of mail in the Soviet Union didn't exceed eight times per month. Basically, that was their goal, and um, this is what they reached in the kind of the more popular parts of the Soviet Union, more populous parts of the Soviet Union, they achieved the fact that you could get mail anywhere twice a week. However, in a lot of places in Siberia and in the Far East and in Central Asia, basically, even with um, industrialization and railroads and everything that Stalin did in the interwar period, mail still arrived only once a week, and sometimes even rarer. Because, well... (laughs) The vast distances in a country that is slowly transitioning from agrarian to industrial are, well, quite a difficult uh, obstacle to surpass. And then, obviously, the World War II happened. And as with every war, the main means of communication in this was mail. Obviously, well, we had phones back then in the day. However, they were limited and very controlled. No one really bothered to allow the common soldiers the luxury of actually calling anywhere. The problem with phones was a major issue in the later stages of the Soviet Union as well, especially since that you had to actually go to a phone central, which was usually right near the post office, to get your long-distance call. You'd call up a number from your home if you had a phone, that was also a luxury later on, and you kind of registered your number, the fact that you would have to go to this central, which was, again, mostly in the post office or extremely next to it. They were certainly tied structures, just so the KGB people wouldn't have to, you know, move that far from reading your letters to basically listening in in your conversations. So you would call in and declare that you're going to call to some, you know, more distant part of the Soviet Union, or sometimes even not so distant. Long distance calls varied from distance that they had to, that they had to kind of pass through. And of course, you could uh, nearly never call to foreign countries in the Soviet era. So you would just register, and then you would go there, and then you would pay extremely large amounts of rubles for the allocated time. But that's all after the war, and like I said, even then, people waited in lines. I remember that um, my grandma used to tell me that she waited for about five years until she could get a landline phone in her home, because, and she lived in Riga, and the process was even more difficult outside of um, the major industrial centers. Like, it was very common back then, even after World War II, that uh, a small village would only get, like, one phone booth per village, and that was in the postal office as well. So, yeah, a bit of a difficulty there. But during World War II, obviously, they had drawn some phone and telegraph lines on the front lines, but they were under tight NKVD control. You know, good old Cheka. Even the call communication between officers and the HQ, all of that was controlled. Same with the letters. But, you know, these moments, as usual, as in every war, these letters from home were a truly, truly important thing for the soldiers, and a lot of people awaited their mail, and when they arrived, 
that was a way important event than when they finally got the good meal from a proper field kitchen, which was also a rarity. However, from the very first days after the war began, it was quite understood by the Kremlin that the postal service that they had at the time, yeah, it didn't really do what it had to do. All in all, like I said, the renewal of the postal services after World War I and the Civil War was difficult. Stalin even called the communications, uh, the mail service, the postal service, the Achilles heel of the Soviet army. And he openly called for, you know, an immediate and effective change of this system. And here is a weird case, since, in a way, Nazis were responsible in helping the Soviet Union to actually build an efficient and, well, more or less efficient postal service. You see, one of the things that the Soviets captured very quickly in the early days of war was a full rules and instructions kind of set of um, the postal service of the German troops. And apparently, the delivering mail and running communications was, well, on a high organized level uh, on the German side of the war, and the Soviet government decided that, well, it would be extremely wrong not to take over this experience. That, of course, involved um, how the mail should be organized and how everything should be sent. And, you know... Seeing that during the wartime there were completely messed up deliveries with ammunition and armored vehicles and everything else needed to wage war, together with this, mail even had a deficit of um, actual envelopes. But the Soviet man, he's a resilient man with uh, great ideas, so on the front lines they simply... (laughs) They simply basically decided to throw them out and not use envelopes at all. These were kind of changed by by now famous from all sorts of Soviet war-era movies and uh, war-era TV shows, famous kind of triangular-shaped letters. You would just write your letter on, well, anything that was at hand, really. These frontline letters were just folded together, closed together in a triangle, and on the one side you'd write an address, the other side of the triangle you'd leave empty, and you didn't put any stamps on them, and they weren't glued together, because, well, everyone already knew that, you know, before your person whom you're sending a letter to will receive it, yeah, the nice men from the KGB, or NKVD at the time, both structures are quite intertwined, really, they'll get read and censored. Well, more in wartime, a bit less after that, but still... Everyone knew about the nice men. So, this was kind of a nice little Soviet way of dealing with this. But, of course, a complete deficit were also empty, clean sheets of paper. Therefore, you know, people wrote on literally everything that had a place to write on. We've seen letters in in archives which were written on templates for documents, on the other side of various posters, and, well, quite a lot of letters were sent on the food packaging. Because, simply, people really didn't have anything else. At the same time, like I said, illiteracy was also an issue. So, on the front lines, a lot of popularity were gained by so-called pismaviki. Because, well, only a few soldiers could actually write with some sense of grammar and style, and a lot of soldiers just went to their comrades-at-arms who could uh, basically write letters for them. 
you would state what you want to say to your family members, and this pismavik, this letter writer, would type it in a cuter, nicer way, so that your family would have something to read. Also, interestingly enough, uh, my sources often state that um, during the wartime, the letters actually went to their recipients faster than, well, even today sometimes. During wartime, the postal service was led by one Ivan Tetrinevich Peresipkin, and he fought really hard to get some priority for the soldiers' letters home. They truly were privileged in comparison to others. Basically, the post was delivered with every possible means of transportation available from everywhere. There were special postal carriages on the trains, ships, airplanes, bikes, and in often cases, some weird documented cases, yeah, even, even the male pigeons were used. You know, war's war. The mail that was sent from the front lines was put in a priority mail list, and it was kind of sent without any kind of lines to wait to be sent, and the postal trains always drove to their targets without any stops. Already at the end of 1941, when they had adapted this German postal instruction set and put Pereshipkin in charge, the Soviet mail worked like clockwork. Each month um, to the front were delivered more than 70 million letters. And uh, to each of these letters or postcards, there was a special stamp on it which stated, Letter of a Red Army Soldier, and Delivery for Free. And, well, later on, during the wartime, on the 6th of February 1943, all the military departments had a new system placed in front of them. They weren't allowed to even write their addresses. Right now, their postal address basically consisted only out of five numbers. The number of the field department and kind of the postal office of this HQ'd part. These numbers were also a tradition that held on later in the Soviet era. We all have zip codes now and everything, but during the Soviet era, one of the more popular envelopes that you could buy in the postal office, by the way, those came already stamped, with a stamp inbuilt, or you could buy a separate stamp, which could then be, you know, used if you collected uh, these stamps, because stamp collecting was quite a large hobby for a lot of people in the Soviet era too, so, well, that obviously served an important role as well. But there were these, like, pre-stamped envelopes, and there were special rules of um, filling up this code there, because you had to write the correct code, because obviously the postal service was tied to the governmental structures as well. These envelopes had place where you kind of had to scribble in on special dots, in a special uh, form, these numbers, which could then be mechanically recognized. The block on the envelopes, which you had to fill, looked quite similar to the digital clock. There were five fields on these. These envelopes were used as just regular envelopes long after the Soviet Union had collapsed, since, well, as usual, envelopes were one of the things that everyone needed, and, of course, they ended up being in, in a deficit in the late 80s, so, you know, people had, had bought boxes of these, since sending a letter was kind of the most reliable way how to, how to send these things. That's a nice little study of everyday life as well. However... Even wartime, where mail actually worked properly and organized everything, yeah, it wasn't as hard as just the first peacetime, which is less strange than you think about it. From the 9th of May, 1945, when the capitulation of Germany was declared, 
in the Soviet Union, that is. Hundreds of thousands of congratulatory letters and postcards were just sent off and they filled all the postal offices. And it was practically impossible to deal with um, such a massive, massive flow of letters. Mountains of letters were just piled up in individual postal offices and very often, understandably, arrived to the people who they were addressed to with a massive delay. And one thing, though, about these delays, I often read that um, someone has delivered a letter only now from the war times, but those cases are few and far between. And in these cases, we only actually have to talk about these um, envelopes, actually envelope letters, which were rare. So I thought these events would be kind of more common, but no, not really, because during the wartime, the Soviet mail actually was efficient and the Pirisipkin worked hard. Only about two or three of these triangular wartime letters actually were, were delivered later on, but that's because how, well, old postal workers say, if you didn't get it in at least two to three weeks, that it probably got lost somewhere. Because, obviously, a lot of these letters were unceremoniously lost, or, in some cases, you know, if you were delivering something to far-off ends of Siberia, uh, just used to um, roll cigarettes or or fires were built out of them. But that's um, about Russia. Now, if we look closer to the Baltics, we also have some interesting stories. After the Soviet Union occupied us in 1940, one of the first things that, um, well, they forcibly occupied was the central post office, and, uh, well, at that time called radiophone, which is, well, where the telegraph was, and at that time, Latvian central radio, which was extremely important, being the central means of communication throughout the country. This happened in 17th of June, 1940, and according to Birota Eglite, in her postal book, which is a kind of study in histories of the Latvian post office, quote, Next to the central post office, an armored truck arrived, out of whom, with a pistol in hand, the Czech officer Boris Nomov stepped out. He was escorted by several soldiers. They went straight to the third floor, where the radiophone administration was, and they immediately immediately gathered all the, all the workers that were there at the time. Everyone who had arrived, Nomov told to basically stand next to a wall, and threatened them with a gun. He gave orders what to do and what can't be done. After a few months, this very Nomov was put in charge over the Riga Long Distance Communication Central. And this is how they took over all the communications industry. Post, telegraph, and the phones became subordinate to the USSR Communications People's Commissar. And uh, obviously, first things first, first order of the business was a complete shift from Latvian to Russian in all official documentation. They immediately cut any direct ties to foreign countries, and all packages now being sent everywhere had to go straight through Moscow. And obviously, uh, this increased the amount of lost mail by multiple times, and no one really could, uh, could gather where they went. After World War II, in Latvia, just as everywhere else in the Soviet Union, a lot of postal offices were restored and renewed. Usually, the leading positions were taken by the ex-Soviet Army officers. However, direct responsibilities were mostly taken care of by their kind of uh, direct subordinates, 
which were mostly locals. People remember that to actually get some career growth in the postal office, you should really work there a long time and um, do some brown-nosing. In 1955, a special uh, Latvian SSR communications ministry was created, which then oversaw the postal office, the telegraph, the telephone, and, of course, anything considered to be related to TV and radio. All the radios were numbered and you had to register them. Why? Because, well, just so people who couldn't catch the Voice of America or Radio Free Europe. After all, you know, that might ruin the minds of the Soviet youth. The first person who led this institution was one Alexander Alexandrov. He was a very controversial person who, well, was happy to be as nepotistic as humanly possible. He retired in 1973, and the new minister of um, communications became one Oswald Strungevitz. He was a more meritocratic person, and this meant that the postal service and the communication industry really kind of uh, became better and improved. However, well, his main issue was dealing with the nepotism of the previous, previous boss. At the time, the letters and mail in the Soviet cities were almost completely modernized already. You could only see a postal worker with a heavy bag on the shoulders only in the countryside. Throughout the Soviet Republic, well, all of them, mostly, except, of course, far off Siberia, there were these um, support points where the heavier mail was delivered. These were split between the postal officers and postal workers who, well, delivered them at home. Ilza Lazdan, one of the older and kind of long-working postal workers in Latvia, states, quote, I worked in the postal sphere twice. First time from 1968 up until 1973, and then after our independence from 1994 up until 2009. At the beginning, we delivered the mail using a horse carriage from the Kolhos, and later on we got some postal cars as well. Although we really couldn't, you know, complain about the lack of work, the salary was only about 60 rubles per month. And yeah, average engineer made about 120 rubles per month. You know, uh, this 60 rubles, well, seeing that a car could cost you from 3,000 to 5,000 rubles, yeah, not that good. But, you know, the Soviet person can always manage to survive somehow. At that time, the post was responsible for various other things, not just delivering mail. It uh, delivered retirement funds, it took in, you know, bills. You could pay your bills in the mail. Of course, often they just packed the whole packages and quite often they went to aid on on the train. There was a limit of how heavy the bags could be carried. No more than 60 kilograms for women and 20 kilograms for men. And, you know, a lot of issues in the post office, specifically in all the republics that weren't Russia, due to the sudden shift to Russia and... Uh, people from Moscow not exactly knowing um, the local languages, caused a lot of issues. And they wrote weird names in Telegram. For example, there was a Telegram which stated, let's meet up in Kurgan, even though the proper Latvian name is Chekurkans. And oftentimes, for example, Zirnavu Street turned into Milnichnaya, which is literal translation, because Zirnavus is kind of a mill, and Milnitsa is also a mill, basically. And all, all sorts of weird stuff like that. And, uh, of course, of course, uh, these letters were read, and people often, well, denounced each other. She remembers that 
they had a visit from nice men from the KGB <sighs> multiple times per month. A sight when um, a car would just step out and, um, you know, a black Volga usually would stop next to the postal office and a lot of Russian-speaking foreigners would, um, would come. That, as she states, was the time to drink some heart medicine. This was when the controllers arrived. The controllers read the letters with great diligence, and, of course, not only the people who wrote the letters could get into trouble, but um, people who worked with the mail and had delivered something extra-sensitive were quite common visitors in the nice little chambers of the corner building, or, well, the central Latvian KGB office. Some of them never came out as well, but oftentimes, well, the postal workers had learned to not to try to peek into anything that they delivered themselves. They had special people who did that for them. Hello there. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at rusansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code EASTERNBORDER for a discount on us. Remember, head over to rusensoft.com and happy shopping! If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And, as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy! A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The ex-director of the Latvian SSR Mail, Ivers Droiskis, remembers that all the postal workers had to be, well, basically guaranteed with security. Every time the mail decided to deliver any money or anything deemed a bit sensitive, they had to carry around guns. And some of them often had bodyguards. All the time when you had money, you always had to have a gun with it. Every postal office had a weapons locker from whom, after a signature, you could get a gun. When you had delivered your mail, you had to, well, give back your gun. And everyone who had access to these guns were registered with the KGB and had undergone instructions for how to use it, and of course got a lot of warnings for what would happen to them if they had, you know, misused the guns. 
But apparently, well, there were very few cases when someone actually had shot a mailman, but, you know, still, was an option. If you had been so unlucky as to actually deliver mail to Siberia, well, then you could count on actually multiple bodyguards oftentimes, since you had to defend yourself not only from wannabe robbers, but also from wildlife. He, by the way, being the director of the Riga Central Mail, previously earned a salary of about 300 rubles. The mailmen started their work at 5 a.m., the mail sorting service at 4 a.m., just because so that the newspapers would be delivered faster on the districts towards the proletariat, in the Riga bus station they were given to the bus drivers. They didn't deliver letters, however, these weren't considered to be, well, mm. secure enough to be entrusted to them, since, well, KGB couldn't really check whether or not they read any. There were multiple deliveries per day. In the first one, usually they delivered at 8 a.m. Pravda and Izvestia, the central Moscow newspapers. In the second delivery, at around 10 a.m., well, it was the local newspapers in your local languages. One of the more interesting aspects of how mail worked in the Soviet Union was about how, in the larger cities, there was the railway sorting post. These, well, a visit to the Riga one only, but these usually had a secret stamping room, which had its own separate always closed and locked entry. It was usually guarded by KGB officers, however, they often didn't say why you couldn't enter there, although it's pretty obvious so that you, well, you know, wouldn't disturb the censorship rules. They stated that you use a special paint containing lead in stamping things, which uh, was um, <clears throat> harmful to human health. The people who worked there, they weren't in a formal mail service, they all were KGB agents. All the letters who arrived from someplace outside the Republic went through that little room. And uh, as all who worked there were directly subordinate to the KGB, no one could enter there, even the political party ministers and even the people who ran the post office. This is where all these people basically checked the addresses, who sent a letter and who received it. Usually they only opened the letters which were sent from suspicious places, if someone, well, deemed something to be kind of important enough to read. Sometimes, you know, obviously they censored these letters, but often they could just not deliver them, because going to your postal office and actually complaining about the fact that you haven't received a letter, yeah, that could, um, that could also end up with you being um, politely invited to join the nice men from the KGB in the corner house. Now, when in the 70s and 80s, the amount of letters increased by a lot, about like two to three times, so that one office couldn't read everything, the KGB just kind of loosened everything, and uh, they moved from this address system to basically getting a monthly reports on which people would send some interesting letters and which would receive them, and started to only monitor those. Of course... Foreign media was unavailable, especially the Western one. Well, that's how the Soviet Union worked. You could only acquire, in a very limited amount, only the press from the Eastern Bloc countries. For example, one of the more popular magazines, Neues Leben, from the German Democratic Republic, uh, The New Life, it was basically only like two to three 
numbers per kiosk, and those were very rare. But this was extremely popular because this magazine contained news about foreign music bands. You know, we loved our rock and roll. From the secret report of the 1984 censorship division, one of the more interesting things that are mentioned there is, quote, From the capitalist countries towards the Latvian SSR private addresses, the following magazines have been delivered. Ski. Skiing. United States of America. Magazine about the sport of skiing. Main direction of the magazine, advertisements, which for a lot of readers in our country can give wrong ideas about the so-called prosperity of the capitalistic land and how they apparently live in wealth and prosperity. Obviously, that's a filthy lie because uh, the Soviet Union was better than everyone else, but, you know, that's the official report. One of the other things that was totally prohibited were mm, vinyl records which contained lies about the USSR, Soviet Latvia, and the Soviet regime. Which meant that getting in music was a difficult prospect. Uh, Smuggling, of course, really fixed that issue. By the way, during World War II, and just after that, there were no celebrational postcards. You couldn't send Christmas cards or or New Year's cards or whatever. These were considered a um, remnant of the bourgeoisie. However, that was a tradition and people still wanted to celebrate. Therefore, during this time, people started to make their own postcards. Officially, sending New Year's greetings, as Christmas was obviously prohibited, was allowed only after the death of Stalin in 1953. This renewed the creation of these greetings cards in all sorts of uh, workshops. Of course, semi-legal craftsmanship and, and artistry developed at the time, since, obviously, quality-made postcards were also deficit. So if you wanted to, well, send something beautiful to your loved ones, you'd go to some art student and pay him to draw you one. In our region, in the Baltics, the traditional cards for New Year's were, well, something with winter on it, with Christmas trees and everything. However, this meant that we mostly avoided the complete and weird mass production sent by Moscow, which usually involved Lenin standing next to the Christmas tree, and even more funnier, Stalin standing next to the Christmas tree, although it's a New Year's tree at that time, since, again, Christmas was prohibited. Of course, the biggest hype or kind of bounce on all the postcards whatsoever happened after the first flight of Yuri Gagarin in 1961. Space was everywhere on these cards up until the end of the space race. This was crazy, but, you know, a lot of people who couldn't get their hands on some custom-made or rare or deficit celebrationary greetings cards, well, yeah, you know, they greeted everyone with um, Sputniks or Gagarins or stuff like that. And now we get to the stamps. Of course, philately, uh, to those of you who maybe haven't heard this, it's uh, the collection of stamps. That's a popular hobby. <laughs> it was always tied to politics as well. The Soviet Union each year let out 100 or 110 postal stamps with various themes on it. However, the communist propaganda was obviously a cornerstone of everything. All the leaders and communist party were glorified on these stamps. Everything was about how we're powerful and glorious, and about the victory of communism. The chairman of the Latvian Philately Union, Egils Blume, states that uh, in their society, there were around 
10,000 members, most of them officers from the military. Maybe because of the patriotic feelings. Not everyone gathered and got their hands on the valuable stamps. You really needed to know people, and there was a massive black market, even in the collecting stamps business. For example, in Riga, only five Moscow Olympics numbered green blocks with stamps were available. At that time, at that time, this block went for a ruble. Block of stamp. Now, well, it costs from 100 to 300 euros. And currently, the prices are increasing, which have been, um, been published before 1957, or in a tiny little kind of flow, or with some weirdness and deficiency. Usually, errors on them. For example, in 1956, there was a stamp with a person working in a kolkhoz on it, and on the one line, the stamps said Muhammad, and the others said Mahmud, and the Mahmud ones are extremely rare. Of course, everything, you know, concerning philately was controlled by the KGB and in the customs. So if you wanted to work with uh, foreign philatelists, you know, trade or exchange postal stamps, you should have gotten a special permission from Moscow. Yes, that's a license to collect stamps. Not as cool as 007, but still pretty nice. And uh, not a lot of people really wanted to go through the mess to get these papers done. Therefore, again, black market comes to the rescue. At the beginning, this happened in the outskirts of Riga, in one of our many forests, to our Latvian listeners, Bicernikomesh, and they moved away to other forests later on. <laughs> By the way, the, the constant black market with stamps, yeah, later on that turned into a major exchange point in the early 90s for rock music. It's right next to one of the endpoints to our trolley buses, and that's pretty nice. Of course, in the black market, everyone was speculating. Remember how I mentioned the salaries? Postal worker, 60 rubles, like the chair of the whole Latvian postal industry, 300 rubles per month, right? Well then, in these black markets, you could uh, get kind of a foreign press for 10 rubles apiece. That's a lot of money. You could um, get Western vinyls for 50 rubles, but, um, you know, the very, very popular ones, such as, I don't know, something made by Led Zeppelin or, or something, you know, huge, went for 70 rubles. That means if you were a postal worker, you really couldn't just buy that vinyl. <sighs> That's why you went for the bones, the custom-made ones. The sum is that for uh, these uh, vinyls. However, yeah, this was a lot more expensive since the local vinyls in the store at that time cost... Um, 2 rubles and 15 kopecks for a vinyl, and 4 rubles for a tape. And of course, still, there were letters going to the military. This continued here up until the mid-90s, even. These were completely free. And, well, the foreign ministry sort of paid for them. However, the Soviet economics basically worked on the principle that all the money is owned by the state, then they spread it out, then the ministries just, you know, meshed them around among themselves. And then there were letters to prisons. Ex-political prisoner Helena Tselmenya, in her book Women in the Soviet Prisons, states, quote, Oftentimes a year or two in the gulag system passes while you're allowed to write your first letter to the closer ones. No one is allowed to write or receive letters when they're still awaiting their court date. 
After the court date, you are prohibited to write two letters per month and only to your family members. Only then, if you don't have any immediate relatives together with your KGB investigator and the administration of Gulag camp, you can put in your personal case file some close known person with his surname, name and address and correspond only to, to him or her. All the letters which intended for your relatives are supposed to be thrown into the camp's postal box. It is prohibited to glue and close the envelopes. If you accidentally glue your envelope by, you know, sheer routine or whatever, it's given back to you. The address of who sends it is mandatory. With the name and surname and everything, you have to clearly identify yourself. All the letters from prison system were read by the censor. Therefore, you always couldn't count on delivering anything faster than two weeks. All the letters which we received from the outside were cut open. Oftentimes, even the corner with the stamps was torn off. This was the only window to the outside, and this was the craziest part of it. Even through the massive censorship, this was the one thing that kept me going. And, of course, all of these were censored. A couple of lines in each of such letters were just censored out by, by black paint, and if you had some package, then, well, it was a common thing to just write everything included in the package. Those lists were, well, also censored sometimes, because sometimes even those were, were closed. And uh, oftentimes for some specific prisoners, you couldn't get a letter out or in, nothing from 10 to 15 years. This was a bit crazy, but that's a thing that people often forget that, you know, not everyone who sits in prison is a criminal after all. Or, on the other hand, a lot of people in the Soviet era were put into prison specifically because they were not criminals. But to finish this episode on a more positive note, there's also the stories about how the Postal Service actually helped overcome deficit and everything. Well, deficit items that were lacking in each district of the Soviet Union were variously different, and, well, there's a person from Novosibirsk who uh, has told about his own experience. See, these packages delivered by mail was kind of a way to balance out the deficit from various ends of the ginormous country. From the Far East to the Central Russia, uh, various dried fruits and nuts were sent, and, of course, fish. From my own Baltic regions, a lot of people just mailed booze and our sprats and, and a lot of perfumes oh, and um, chewing gum. Weirdly enough, the black markets in the other parts of the Soviet Union really didn't have chewing gum. Meanwhile, that was the number one thing that people from other parts of the Soviet Union purchased here in our black markets. And uh, this person remembers that in the army, Tajiks, Uzbeks and Turkmens got all these uh, dried fruits and nuts packages, and he mostly remembers that one of the packages that were uh, kind of confiscated were weird-smelling white balls reminding people of uh, old kefir and, and dried-up kefir. This guy is from Belarus, and um, he states that he received all sorts of sausages and, and cheese for, and, and stuff like that from home. And... Apparently, the most popular thing to send back to your relatives who sent you all this good stuff to your army parts was just clothing. 
stolen from the army surplus stores. But this is an important fact since in the Soviet era, you know, store-bought clothing was kind of mostly of poor quality. Or, you know, didn't look as good. The quality boots, pants, and stuff like that, and also raincoats, weirdly enough, that all went to the army. If you wanted to get some high-quality shoes, which wouldn't break or, or would look nicer, then, well, you know, you would send a message to your local army person, and he would then go to his praporshik, uh, the guy who ran the stores, and, you know, for a little payment, little dealings here and there, when you could send back stuff. And oftentimes, well, they sent back stuff in the same box that they came over. The traditional packaging was hard plywood box, and, well, basically, on the top of it there were two addresses, obviously the one who receives it and the one who sends it. But the Soviet man is a practical person, so all you had to do was just turn the lid around, and, well, you sent it back. And oftentimes, people in the army remember that you could basically tell what was in the package by, by how it looked. If it was a cardboard box with holes on top, it was fruit, because fruit were extremely rare. That is why we still have a tendency to eat bananas for Christmas, because those were the most common fruit that you could get. And, you know, those were also mailed. Of course, there were also bags for clothing. And if uh, it was a paper package, then it was either documents or books. And this guy remembers that um, in 1985, for the first time ever, he visited Moscow from his native Novosibirsk, and he was surprised by the amount of confectionery there. Apparently, those things were rare outside of Riga, where we had our Lima factory, to a lesser extent in, in Estonia and Vilnius as well, even though they've, they've kind of overcome this deficit, and of course Moscow and St. Petersburg. Because apparently, in Novosibirsk, there were no candy whatsoever. And he just remembers that he had bought seven kilograms of different candy in the store around the station, and without even stepping any further, just went to the postal office and mailed them. This was an extremely important, popular thing, as the postal services were quite cheap. Basically, you know, you just went another city, mostly larger one, in these called buyer's trains, and what you couldn't really, or didn't want to carry around, back home with you on this train, you just use the postal office to send it. And he also remembers that once he worked in construction in Kamchatka, part of the salary at that point in the late 80s was paid in um, dried goods. This time it was our condensed milk, which is a great thing. I should really, really make an episode about the Soviet food at one point. Which uh, he also mailed back to Novosibirsk so that his relatives could trade it for some other goods. Because remember, we're talking about the era where it's not about how much you make, it's about whom you know and what sort of deficit can you trade for other deficits. Strangely, one of the food items that you absolutely couldn't uh, send or mail anywhere was caviar. In the post offices, this was strictly prohibited, even if you paid someone, you know, your little wads of um, canned goods, the condensed milk. I still have no idea why you wouldn't be able to send it. I mean, it is canned, however, eh, you know... Stuff happens. However, you know, people have some fond memories, and other times there are not so fond memories. Sometimes, you know, the, even the KGB went uh, a bit too far about this, their own censorship and weirdness as well. Here's a study from a person who lived on one of those so-called closed cities. They all existed throughout the USSR, and they're still alive today. You know, oftentimes... Uh, these people worked in, you know, nuclear stations or built rockets for Korolev. 
you know, stuff like that. Closed city, secret, not found on any maps, but it exists. To send mail from there, you basically had to get a another special permission box, and often you had to go to a special loan territory with their local post office, where you didn't write your own address, you just gave uh, the hidden name for the city, which had no relation to its um, original official location. You know, I've mentioned these in previous episodes, but they were named like Arzamas 16, Chelyabinsk 69, Krasnoyarsk 26, you know, all that stuff. They were secret and closed, and, well, like I said, they still exist today. And these whole cities were completely closed off by a massive fence and everything, and, of course, those those postal offices were extra controlled. Often, you know, through these places to even work on the post office, you were always kind of guarded by two or three cars of militia, the local police force. Even kind of the outlying villages outside of the city, even that mail was completely and totally controlled. It was also completely impossible to call to such a city if you were a civilian just working there. Therefore, the only true kind of control of uh, communications and everything went through the postal office. And, well, sometimes it could get a bit late. This person, and I'm driving through memories of um, old people who remember their Soviet mail stories, is how once he lived in such a city and he had managed to just gather around and finally meet his grandma. The story happens in 1956 here. Because of uh, Stalin's purges, his grandma was just sent off to the Gulag system and afterwards rehabilitated. At one point, grandma got permission from now Khrushchev's government to basically try to visit the city, which is a big deal. Now, afterwards, grandma was supposed to, you know, create a telegram stating that, well, she's live and well, and, you know, she's back. Because... Getting out is actually much harder than getting into such cities, because before you enter, you don't really know what's happening there. Once you leave, you've seen things which could be deemed governmental secrets, so these people get controlled, and she had been, you know, in Stalin's era, sent to a camp. Uh, Who knows what could happen? People have disappeared for less. So, obviously, these people basically sit there, and, and the grandma leaves, and they had been waiting for 10 days, 20 days, And again, let me remind you that uh, postal office and telegraph is the only connection. You You can't literally physically call in there. And even if you want to go and and telegram someone, you have to go to the closest office. And even then, you have to kind of register three days beforehand. Now, they managed to get a special permission to drive outside the city and go and call from farther away, 30 kilometers away from the city, So they managed to get a license, which was valid for three days after they finally decided that it's time to contact their grandma. They drove quite far to get to this call, and they were allowed to speak for exactly five minutes. Literally five minutes, you know, you you purchased time beforehand. And, um, of course, grandma had sent the telegram, and this time she was okay, but it was missing. However, you know, these people calmed down and everything is nice, but uh, another random time passes, a couple of months, and this guy with uh, his other, he was a kid at the time, he apparently, well, he just noticed that other kids were playing hide-and-seek in the nearby yard, and apparently 
one of his friends just yelled that, Oh, looky here, there are some sort of papers. Well then, this kid apparently found about, you know, a couple of dozen blanks of telegrams. Out of which, of course, was his grandma's telegram. And uh, he sort of decided to do the smart thing, because it is a closed hidden city, and just gathered it and gave it to his dad, who instantly turned it over to to Milizia. Because if you didn't, again, KGB structures are no interesting things. And then they called to the factory where he worked, and it was a huge scandal. Turns out that all the telegrams had been marked as read by the censors and never just went to the postal office. Someone in the censorship bureau had just forgotten to do this, either he was very drunk or something, although apparently the telegrams didn't really contain any important information. But, um, yeah. Soon enough, apparently, half of the KGB officers in higher-up positions in this secret town had been changed. So, you know, another reason... Well, sometimes it's um, a bit difficult to work at the post. I'm pretty sure that everyone who worked at that post office also got into trouble. Since, you know, this is the Soviet Union, and collective responsibility is a thing. And okay, that's it for today. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you learned something from these vignettes here. I'm having an interview later on tonight with a history PhD person who's written a book about how Stalinism got a lot of his influences from the orthodoxy and less from actual Marxism, which I find interesting. I'm going to have a lot of questions. So that's going to be the next episode. And after that, I'll be finishing my standards part, which I messed up last time, for which I'm really sorry. But yeah, check this whole thing out. And I hope you enjoyed this episode, because, well, it was uh, slightly less depressing than the last one. And, uh, well, it was even more depressing once I started recording, but some things had to be cut. I'm pretty sure I'll put that in into my patreon which you should join if you want to support the show it's patreon.com slash the eastern border or you can just go to our homepage, the eastern border.lv and click on the donate button there we also accept ethereum and bitcoin now apparently which is pretty nice so yeah please support the show thank you for listening and uh i don't know don't skip the ads and i'm really happy that our show is growing lately and uh, see you next time Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.